Well, just to start us off, I want to begin with a question that I think probably all of us, at least all of us with some kind of basic concept of the existence of God, I want to start off with a question that I think probably all of us have asked. If you're a Christian, you've asked it. Uh, If you're from another religion, you've asked it. If you're not quite sure who God is, maybe he's a force or something, you've asked it. And the question is this, why doesn't God do something about that? I think the interesting thing is, probably you don't have to think particularly hard to come up with a that. Some of you are perhaps sitting next to that right now. Uh, For some of you, that is... (laughs) Please, please. (laughs) Uh, Some of you, that is back at home. Some of you perhaps work for that. Some of you work with that. Maybe you live next door to that. And then there's a whole lot more serious stuff. There's illness. There's coming to terms with sudden bereavement, maybe. And there are all things going on around the world. You can turn the television on or watch the news, and you're like, God, why don't you do something about that? Bottom line is, God doesn't always do things the way we would like him to do them. Now, if this is news for you, really sorry to be the bearer of bad news on a Sunday morning, but you would have worked it out for yourself sooner or later. God is God and we're not, which basically means that God doesn't always do things at our speed or in exactly the way we would have done them if we were him. Now, one of the reasons for saying all of this up front is that there may well be people here today who aren't Christians, and I don't want to spin you some kind of a yarn that following Jesus is like a walk in the park. Sometimes, being honest, it is just full of confusion and disappointment. Like, God, why are you doing it this way? God, I I just don't understand. And if you are a Christian, I think it's important to get this right out on the table at the very beginning because it's good to be real with one another. Don't know about you, I don't want to be part of a church where everyone pitches up on a Sunday, smiles at one another and pretends that life is a hundred times better than it actually is. And so this morning, I just want us to be honest with one another because following Jesus is brilliant but it's not always easy. God really does think he knows better than us. And as a result, he doesn't always do things the way that we would. Now, all of that being said, you've been here through this big story series. You'd have kind of already got the message. Delays, disappointment, confusion, and silence are rarely far away from the characters in this story. Some of the recurring themes are that God seems quieter than the people would have hoped, or slower than they'd hoped, or somehow isn't delivering all the things that they'd hoped. For example, right back at the very beginning of the story, Adam and Eve don't like the fact that God forbids them from eating the fruit of a certain tree. They think they know better. It doesn't go well for them. Abraham, 
lives with this remarkable promise of being the father of a whole nation. He reaches his 90th birthday and is still childless. Joseph has this amazing prophetic dream. He's going to be one of the greatest rulers in the whole of the ancient world. What happens instead is he becomes a slave and ends up a prisoner forgotten in some dungeon somewhere. Sure, it does eventually work out as God said it would, but not as quickly as either Abraham or Joseph expected or would have liked. As the story progresses, God's people become slaves in Egypt for 400 years. All the time they're crying out to God, God, what are we doing here? We thought you had a promised land for us. Eventually, after many of them had given up all hope, God performs some astonishing miracles to fulfill every single one of his promises. And then as we saw last week, when God's people are then carried off into exile, they really do think it's all over. But in reality, God is only just beginning. Out of the most desperate, desperate situation, God starts doing even more amazing things than ever before. The message is simple. You might think that your situation is pretty hopeless. In fact, you might have given up hope of God ever coming through for you. But God would encourage you even now to keep on trusting Him. Because He's the God of the breakthrough. You have no idea what He has got around the corner for you. And so, we've come to week 11 in this series. I've just entitled today's talk, Disappointed. Uh, I'm hoping that won't be your lasting, lingering thought on the back of the talk. Uh, Hopefully something better, but disappointed. Because these final five books of the Old Testament are basically all about how to handle it when God doesn't do things the way you think he should. We're going to be looking primarily at the last two history books of the Old Testament, Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra covers the period 538 up until 457 BC. Nehemiah covers 446 to 432 BC. And then there were also three prophets who were prophesying during this period, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. We may well dip into some of their prophecies as well. Basically, this whole period is wonderful and dreadful at one and the same time. I mean, that's how it is in life, isn't it? Following Jesus it, it is both amazing and it can be quite confusing as well. It's incredibly exciting and incredibly frustrating at times. Because that's why we're called to walk by faith. I want us to be real about that this morning. So, I want to talk about three of perhaps the biggest areas of disappointment that we can face in our day-to-day lives. And then I want to give you an opportunity to respond at the end. I want you to be ready to respond at the end. Okay, disappointment number one. What do you do when things don't happen as quickly as planned? Book of Ezra begins so well. I mean, it's just great. Just to give you a bit of the background, as we saw last week, it wasn't so great. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, destroys Jerusalem. 
wipes out most of the Jews. There are only 50,000 or so left. It's like he annihilates the Jewish race. Those he doesn't slaughter, he carries off to Babylon where he attempts to brainwash them into rejecting God and following false idols. But then something wonderful happens. In 539 BC, completely out of the blue, in just one night, the Persians invade Babylon, they capture the city. And all of a sudden, just like that, the Jews are no longer part of this brutal Babylonian empire. Instead, they're under Persian rule. Basically, the Persian policy wasn't to try and destroy all the different ethnic groups in their empire. They just let them be. They kind of figured if they prosper, they'll earn more money, pay more taxes, and then we'll prosper too. It was a much nicer place to be. I think we could perhaps learn a bit from them in our culture today. Anyway, moving swiftly on, not making political points. It gets even better than that. Well, kind of. Uh, it, it, it gets even better than that. In Daniel 9, in 538 BC, just a few months after this whole power change, Daniel is reading the writing of the prophet Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah chapter 25 and chapter 29, Jeremiah prophesies that the exile will only last for 70 years. Now Daniel's reading this and he's kind of doing the calculations, he's doing the maths. He works out that since he was taken to Babylon in 605 BC, there are actually only three years left until God has promised to miraculously deliver his people. And so he starts praying. He starts interceding for his people and reminding God of his promise. You have said 70 years, it's three years away, I don't see much evidence of this promise being fulfilled. God, you're a God who doesn't lie, how about it? And what happens next, I think, prepares us for those moments when God doesn't do things quite as we would. Daniel's praying for breakthrough and deliverance. And here's what happens. The Persian king suddenly starts persecuting the Jews. Daniel himself gets thrown into a den of lions. It's like a clue that this final section of the Old Testament isn't quite going to go as expected. Daniel prays for deliverance. God's response? He allows him to be thrown into a lion's den. I mean, we've just got to face up to this. Because sometimes we're following Jesus... And we're left scratching our heads like, I thought you cared about me. I I thought you loved me. I thought you'd given me these promises. What, What are you doing in my life? How dare you do this to me? Listen, we've got to understand, God knows best. Because here's how the story plays out. God protects Daniel in the lion's den. Miraculously, he comes out alive. As a result, the king of Persia sits up and takes notice. He thinks Daniel's God must be the one true God. He tracks down the heir of David, a guy called Zerubbabel, appoints him governor of Judah. He also manages to find the heir of the high priest, appoints him to lead alongside Zerubbabel. And then he sends them back to Jerusalem, along with 42,000 Jews, and says, not only do I want you to rebuild the temple, but I'm going to pay for it out of the Persian treasury. It is an amazing turnaround. 
This is what they've been waiting for. Finally, God was coming through for them. And so they get home, they rebuild the altar in Jerusalem, start laying the foundations for the temple. Everything was going well until disaster strikes again. You see, the Samaritans who have kind of made themselves at home while the Jews have been away start getting jealous of the Jews once they return and they start grumbling and complaining to the king of Persia. They say stuff like, well, you know what the Jews are really planning, don't you? And they're only doing this so they can lead a rebellion against you. And tragically, the Persians believe the lie and they call a halt to the rebuilding of Jerusalem. God's people are forced to wait for another 15 years. I don't know whether anyone else has ever experienced God not doing things as fast as you would have liked. I don't know, perhaps you think you found your perfect partner, then it breaks up when you thought you were going to get married. You think you're about to start your family and it just doesn't happen as quickly as you'd expected. Or you get a brilliant job offer you start telling all your friends so excited about it, and then it doesn't quite materialize as you'd expected. Or maybe you get healed, and then a few months later, it comes back, and it's even worse than before. Have you ever experienced those kinds of frustrations? I think it's part and parcel of following God. If you want to follow Him, it means being willing to go at His pace. Now, the book of Ezra, I believe, shows us how to handle God's delays. First thing that the people do is consider whether perhaps they've misunderstood what God has said. Generally speaking, when God doesn't do what I think he's promised to do in my life, it's normally because I've misunderstood somewhere along the line. It's exactly what Daniel did, so I don't feel so bad about myself. Daniel basically got the wrong end of the stick. He made the mistake of assuming that all of God's plans revolved around Daniel himself. And yet Daniel was taken to Babylon in 605 BC, and so 535 BC, if you do the maths, would be 70 years. But actually Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 BC, and sure enough, in the second half of Ezra, the temple is completed in 516 BC, exactly 70 years after its destruction. Now, you just need to trust me on that. The maths do stack up. Some are looking slightly bemused. Here's the point. If God isn't doing things as quickly as you think he should, the first thing that God invites us to do is just take a step back and consider, have I misunderstood what God is saying? That that thing that didn't quite work out, was it really the provision of God? Was it really what God was promising me? Or is God being incredibly gracious to me by letting me have, not letting me have what I wanted because he's got something different for me, something better, more in keeping with his plan. First thing that people do is consider whether they've misunderstood what God said. Second thing to do is resist the temptation to sulk. I think it's easy when God doesn't do things as quickly as you want to respond like, well, I'm not going to read the Bible anymore then. Oh, I'm not going to pitch up on a Sunday. I and mean, if you don't do things as I want, then why should I bother anymore? That is the exact opposite of what you should do. 
You see, God loves Zerubbabel so much, he sends two prophets to speak the word of God to him, to encourage him. Zechariah comes along and basically says, look, the problem is you think you can do all of this stuff in your own strength. That The reason for this delay, this frustration you're experiencing right now, is God wants to start working on your heart. Zechariah 4 verse 6, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. If you're in this situation right now, things are just tough. Please, don't run away from God and sulk. In times where God is not doing things as quickly as you want, that is the moment where you need to get amongst your Christian friends, where you need to read the Bible more, when you need to grapple with what God is actually saying. When you're disappointed, don't run from God, run to God. You know, I think a lot of the time we are more bothered about just getting the job done. We're more interested in the end destination. I think often God is much more interested in the journey. It's like we say, there's nothing wrong with me, the problem's all with you, God. And God says, no, 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 no. The more and more the thing to me is changing some things in your heart. And the only way I can get your attention is to get you praying and seeking me over this thing that hasn't happened very quickly. In this room right now, There'll be many people waiting for God to do something. There's a delay. Things aren't working out as you'd want. And even now, God is wanting to grab your attention. He's wanting you to focus on Him. He's wanting you to trust in His strengths rather than your own strengths to work it all out. Someone who knew more about delays than just about anyone else was the Apostle Paul. Let's have a listen to what he writes about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. This may be happening in your life. You're facing difficulty, hardship. You're feeling pretty weak right now. And God is just wanting to invite you into His counsel. He's wanting you to hear what the Bible says in books like Ezra and Nehemiah, that when God delays, it's just that he's trying to get you to trust in his strength rather than your own, so that you can achieve something far, far better for his glory. Now, there's more I want to say. There is more I will say. But before we go any further, I want to pray, because I recognize there are people who will be struggling with this very thing, I don't want you to wait until the end. I want you to receive power and strength from God right now. Heavenly Father, thank you that 
in the midst of our weakness, you are able to infuse us with strength. And I want to pray even now as you look down on us, the situations we're grappling with, the delays we don't understand, the weakness, the fragility, the frailty we're experiencing even in our own bodies. I want to pray, Father, you would send your Spirit to us. I ask powerful presence of God, would you flood this place? Every person who's even finding it hard to concentrate on what I'm saying because of the distraction of a situation, that thing that is bogging them down, that's confusing them, pulling them away from you. Say, Spirit of God, come like a flood right now. I want to pray in the midst of weakness, you would be incredibly strong. I want to pray that your grace would be sufficient for us in the midst of the difficulties, the disappointments of life. Holy Spirit, come, minister gently, softly, sensitively. I want to pray, raise our gaze, raise our heads, come with faith, come with hope. Come with your provision, I pray. Pray for definite change, the result of your work in our lives. Amen. Amen. Now, if Ezra helps us work through this whole disappointment associated with things not happening as quickly as we'd have liked. Nehemiah helps us come to terms with the disappointment of friends letting us down. Book of Nehemiah begins in 446 BC. So 70 years passed from the destruction of Jerusalem to the rededication of the temple. Another 70 years passed from the rededication of the temple to the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls. All the time, Nehemiah, a Jew, has stayed on in Persia, working as one of the king's officials. He kind of trusts his friends to get on with the rebuilding work in Jerusalem without him. But as the book begins, Nehemiah receives some pretty tragic news. In the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burnt with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. Kind of sets the stage for the whole book. It's a wonderful book about the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. Nehemiah takes some people back to Jerusalem. Amazingly, he organizes them so that in just 52 days, they've rebuilt the entire city. It's absolutely remarkable. But in the midst of all of this, Nehemiah's friends let him down a lot. For starters, the Jewish noblemen refused to get their hands dirty. They refused to roll up their sleeves and do any of the work themselves. And they let him down a second time by lending money at such extortionately high interest rates that the poorest Jews are forced into becoming their slaves. They were like the payday loan sharks of the ancient world. And Nehemiah is absolutely furious with them. And so he insists that they make a solemn pledge to serve the Lord before he then heads back to his work in the Persian capital. 
but it gets worse. When Nehemiah eventually returns to Jerusalem, it's a real mess. The high priest is renting out parts of the temple to get some extra cash for himself. The ordinary Jews are working on the Sabbath and withholding their offerings from God. A whole bunch of them have married pagan idolaters. Nehemiah is so frustrated that he confesses, I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I mean, real pastoral tips we can get from Nehemiah. That's how the book ends. Doesn't end on a high. Very much ends on a low. Ends with people letting Nehemiah down. And so God sends Malachi, the final prophet of the Old Testament, to encourage Nehemiah. He promises that suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. The Old Testament doesn't end with everything going well, but with the focus entirely on Jesus. It's like people will let you down. And yes, it can really hurt at times. I don't want to downplay the hurt, the pain that comes from broken relationships. But I think it's also understandable. You see, whatever or whoever you turn to instead of Jesus will always eventually let you down in some way. Because ultimately, friends can't be God to you because they aren't God. And so when the people close to you let you down, I'm urging you, please don't give up. Instead, focus your eyes on the fact that Jesus is the friend who sticks closer than any brother. If you've got relationship issues right now, I don't know, maybe you've, it feels like you've, you've given yourself to others and you've been hurt, badly hurt in the process. I'm encouraging you, look to Jesus. He's the one who's given himself up for you. I can guarantee he will not let you down. Your life with him can be tough, but he is the most faithful friend. I don't know, maybe some of you are kind of trapped in this whole cycle of trying to get acceptance from the friends around you, the people around you, but they're so fickle. They turn on you in an instant. You think they're your best friend and they gossip behind your back. They let you down. I tell you, you don't have to strive or struggle or work really hard to get acceptance from Jesus. He, he sees you as you really are. He sees beneath the surface you, all, all your secrets and he still accepts you. He loves you with a covenant love. He's the most faithful friend you can ever have. So in the midst of hurt and pain and relationships just being tricky and tough, people letting you down, won't you put your energy into your relationship with Jesus? Get closer to the one who will not let you down. Now after Ezra, Nehemiah, Malachi... There's a 400-year silence until Jesus comes. During this period, 
the Jewish homeland is invaded on three separate occasions, culminating in the Roman rule. And all the time, through this whole period, God is silent. That's four whole centuries of God saying nothing, or at least nothing new. Have you ever thought, God, why don't you say something? I suggest these 400 years of silence might well be part of what God is wanting to say to you this morning. Help us answer this third question. What do you do when God seems silent? What do you do when God seems distant? Do you identify with that? Well, if so, here are a few things to do. First of all, here's how a guy called Oswald Chambers put it in his classic book, My Utmost for His Highest. He put it like this, if God has given you a silence, then praise him. He's bringing you into the mainstream of his purposes. Let me try and explain that. I don't think God is silent because he has nothing to say. Very often, it's more a case that he has said it already. All right, the reason I think not much happens for 400 years, four whole centuries, is God has already told people all they needed to know. It's like he's saying, I don't want to give you any distractions. I want to turn down the background noise. I don't want to confuse things for you. I've already told you where you need to be looking. I've already told you the Messiah is coming. I've already told you you need to be crying out for Jesus to come and help you. It's as though God stops speaking so people start listening. He's going, now listen to what I have said. As we reach the end of the Old Testament, God doesn't want you to miss the big picture. After 11 Sundays, are you getting it yet? It is all pointing to Jesus. As we move into the New Testament, the arrival, the birth of Jesus is what it has always been about from the very beginning. Whole of the Old Testament points to Jesus. Whole of the New Testament points back to Jesus. Because this is God's message to you. God's message to you is that he hasn't delayed. We're told in the New Testament that Christ came at just the right time. God isn't silent. He came to the world so you would know his voice. And God wants to focus all our attention on Jesus because he is the one friend who will never, ever, ever let you down. Jesus is the answer to everything. Don't know about you? I'm pretty glad God hasn't merely given us a spreadsheet. He's given us a person hasn't handed you a 10-page document or contract like, here's all you need to know. He's given you a person, Jesus Christ. And he said, follow this man. There's not many that he's holding up Jesus and saying, here's where your attention must go. It's more than that. This Jesus knows exactly how you feel. You feel like God's silent? Remember on the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You feel like your friends have let you down. His friend Judas betrayed him to death. 
His other disciples abandoned him in his hour of greatest need. You ever feel like things aren't working out as you would have wanted? He's the one who, remember, on the eve of his crucifixion, prayed, Father, this is what I want, this is what I don't want, but ultimately, not what I want, but what you want. Your will be done. He, more than anyone else, is able to understand. And he's the one who promises to walk through your life with you, helping you cope with delays and silence and disappointments. It's like God this morning is saying to you, all these things, all these disappointments going on in your life, it's not because I don't love you. I loved you so much I gave my only son for you. And right now I want to remove, I want to turn down some of that background noise. I want to grab your attention. I want you to focus completely on Jesus. And so I want to give you an opportunity to do just that. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to this message where it lands for you. If you're able to, would you just stand? I don't know, maybe there are delays and disappointments that are very real in your mind right now. Or maybe you're still trying to come to terms with things from the past. Really, it's time to leave it behind. I want you in this moment to, for you to say to Jesus, I'm here and I trust you. I don't understand it all, but I trust you. I don't know, maybe it feels like you haven't heard God speak to you for a long time. End of the meeting, there are going to be a bunch of people here who would love to pray for you, love to minister to you. Or maybe you're not a Christian. This morning, there's an invitation from God to you individually. Will you respond by saying, Jesus, I'm in? I recognize it's not going to be easy, but I just say, I'm going to follow you whatever happens just want to give you a moment where you're standing or where you're sitting in your own mind in your own words just quietly where you are to pray your response to Jesus what do you want to say to him what does this look like in your life